Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Daniel Mate, a composer, a lyricist, and a playwright for musical theatre. He's based in both New York and British from British Columbia. Outside his interest in music and theatre, he also runs the world's only mental chiropractic service, Take a Walk with Daniel, which is so interesting. We will talk about it a bit today. He's also the co-author of two books with his father, Dr. Gabor Mate, including The Myth of Normal and Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us. Uh, would you be able to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, Selena. Thanks for having me. I mean, the first thing I need to do is to just tweak a few things in that bio, which obviously uh, I send it to you. So there, that it's on me that there was a few corrections that, that need to be made. Number one, I'm only based in New York these days. I am from Vancouver, though. I am from British Columbia, Canada, but I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, secondly, the Hello Again book, the second of the two books, hasn't been written yet. But it, <clears throat> we do have a contract to write it, so you you could say that it's in the works, um, and it's you know right. It's next on the docket. We've been very busy, especially my dad has with promoting the myth of normal since it came out in September. But hello again will be next up. We have been leading a workshop of the same name on the same topic um, for about seven years now. So we've been at it for a while. Um, what else can I say about me? I mean, you covered it well. One thing I didn't that isn't mentioned in there is that I'm a podcast host as well. I co-host a podcast called Let's Get Lyrical with Carice and Daniel. And since you're in Australia, that that you should be able to guess where that title is. Uh, what that title is a takeoff from. It's a little tribute to the the late great Olivia Newton John. But we, um, Carice Van Houten is my co-host. She was an actress, well, is an actress. She was on Game of Thrones. Um, she's been in, she she starred opposite uh, Tom Cruise in the movie Valkyrie. She's a Dutch actress. And we've become friends recently and we do this podcast about song lyrics. And we talk about all kinds of songs and the lyrics and what they mean to us and how they relate to things in our lives along various topics. We had my dad on as um, uh, our first live stream guest in January. We have very famous country pop music star coming on very soon on our live stream. So um, I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, in addition to being a songwriter for musical theater myself, just thinking about and geeking out about songs and lyrics is something that I, I mean, I'll probably drop all, you know, 10 lyric references into this interview because that's just what I tend to do I always think in terms of oh that reminds me of that song so yeah. um that's that's that's, that's, that's one extra thing about me yeah so when you uh so let's talk about how you interwove some of this I think into the myth of normal that's what it seemed like to me reading the book which is an amazing book and I haven't finished it yet because I it's it's really starting point of every walk I do with people. You got to be stuck somewhere in your life. Well, when we're stuck, by definition, some part of us is comfortable being stuck. It got me this far. Why change? And transformation and a totally radical rehauling, or maybe even maybe even letting go of some part of my point of view is scary, even if it holds out the prospect of freedom, maybe because it holds out the prospect of freedom. If the book is called The Myth of Normal, right? Yeah. What we're contending is that we're living in a kind of matrix in this modern late stage capitalist global society where things have become normalized, which is to say we don't see them anymore. 
that are actually really inimical to our health. They're really aberrant from the perspective of our species evolution, and they should stand out to us like sore thumbs, but they don't. Why is that? Because they faded into the wallpaper. They faded into the background. Well, you know, what I saw from the very beginning is if the intention of the book is to bring that stuff from the background into the foreground and how people see it, well, you have to give the devil its due. You got to recognize why it's hard to see. You got to give respect to the fact that there are difficult things about seeing these things. There are things we have to give up. You know, you know, one of my favorite authors talks about how a good, you know, a good philosopher or a good thinker will is actually a thief because he'll rob you of your illusions. He's going to take something from you, you know, and people don't give up their illusions willingly. Here's a song reference. Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses has a lyric, I've worked too hard for my illusions just to throw them all away. And that's very astute. And we all have that in certain things. There's things we cling to. So you have to court people in a sense. You have to get them to see that it's in their self-interest to take a, a new uh, to examine things which means you have to approach them with compassion but also the respect to talk straight to them and say you know if you're reading this book we're saying that normal contains all kinds of invisible mythic and dangerous falsehoods uh we don't expect you to take that on faith we're inviting you to take a look and see if it fits and if it fits, then how's that going for you? How's that going for us? We're inviting people to radically overhaul their perspective. And we don't, I don't take that lightly. You know, that's a big ask. So um, the, the inertia of the status quo point of view that kind of wants to stay the way it, is, way it is because why rock the boat needs to be, and sometimes you jostle people. Sometimes you, you kind of give them a Zen slap, but more often you have to, I think court them into coming along with you and saying, Hey, take a look at this because, and, and you have to be able to confidently, confidently promise from the outset. And we had to do this. I think one of the flaws, one of the shortcomings of my dad's original concept of the book that was weighing him down in the writing of it until I came along was it was way too heavy. It was just a diagnosis of what's wrong. And when people would say, well, why would people buy that? He's like, that's not up to me. I, I just want to show people the truth. But that's that's actually in, that's incomplete, you know, which is why he was having a hard time doing it. You have to be able to confidently from the beginning say there's something in this for us. If there's new possibilities that open up if we can see it a certain way. And deep down, we're all committed to health. We want that for ourselves. Or if we can't muster that desire for ourselves, we want it for the people we love. So if we can admit that things are messed up, and off course. And if we can feel the impact of that, feel the heartbreak of that, feel the anger or whatever comes up, then there's something on the other side of it. And we, because the book is so dense and long, as you're finding, it's 500 pages long, we have to keep saying throughout, stick with it, because we're going to get to part five, healing. And there's a lot that becomes available, but first you can't, but you have to see things the way they are before you can envision how they might be. So that's the the sort of that was the urgent importance of working with and not trying to fight against uh -huh. people's tendency to want to kind of 
all else being equal, unless they have a really good reason, who wants to, to go to the trouble of like having their illusions busted up? It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> How was it for you? Did did that happen for you at all personally? Along the way? Um, not in terms of interacting with the content of the book. I was already fully on board. It, the the illusions that got busted up or the paradigms that got shifted had to do with between me and my dad, the, the interpersonal aspect and, and what it took to collaborate on something of this magnitude. And also knowing like nothing else I had ever done. I knew this was going to get out in the world. I knew it was going to have a big audience. I've never done that. You know, when I write a musical, uh, you know, a musical rhythm to it in terms of the prose, I mean, um, there's no way to easily segment my part from his part. Every single page contains a lot of him and a lot of me. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the roles, uh, it's his baby. These are his, it's his thesis. It's based on his lifetime of work. It's based on his 10 and a half, 11 years of researching the book, hundreds of interviews, tens of thousands of articles collected. You know, it's heavily documented as you can see from the end notes and throughout the book referring often to studies and articles and this and that and speaking to just tons of experts and celebrities and people who aren't known so well all of that was him and all of that predated my coming aboard in 2018 after he had already quit the book once and then gotten back on the horse once he got re-inspired he wrote a big long um not very good, <laughs> but certainly promising book proposal. And he he sent it to me. And my, my, my mom had already summarily rejected it. She said, this is leaden and, and awful. I would never want to read this book. And he was kind of discouraged. I mean, she's always right when it comes to his, <laughs> his writing. Um, he calls her the, the Supreme authority or something like that. That's his nickname for her. He sent it to me and I said, this is, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but you need my help on this one. I had edited his work before I edited hungry ghosts, yeah. his previous book, but this one, I was like, you're not fully in command of the story you're telling here. There's it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you know how to do. And you could write this and it'll sell well among your following mm -hmm. people who are already aboard what I call the trauma train, but that's not who this book is strictly for. This is a book for the world. You're, you're trying to point to something that is relevant to everybody about the world that we're all living in, not just the already, you know, converted. And I was really adamant that if this is structured right, and if it's worded right, if the angle of approach and the tone are persuasive, careful, but bold, um, you know, not, not, selling out on the message at all, but but being respectful of the audience enough to know that they may be coming at this from very different places. And so some of the things that are being said are not entirely self-evident. In fact, it shouldn't be because we're trying to pierce a hole in the myth of normal. So it should be subversive. Well, how do you do subversive? You know, How do you get a message across that people some part of people wants to hear and some some part of the same person doesn't want to hear. Exactly. Well, I th that's something that I have a lot of fun with. I really am a I'm a born communicator and I had often kind of been a bit of an armchair quarterback of my dad's writing and speaking being like, "Oh, I wish it said it differently because I think that would land better," you know. While here I had the chance, I know as I said in the acknowledgments of the book, it was the opportunity of a lifetime to finally get to put words in his mouth. 
because <laughs> the personal pronoun I, me, and mine of this book is his. So I'm writing in his voice. So to get back, to circle back to your question of what was my, you know, what are you, when you're reading the book, what sections are Daniel? Like I said, we would kick the chapters back and forth to each other until we were both satisfied. We were right over each other's stuff. I mean, and sometimes there were pretty intense negotiations, but by the end, we really hit our stride where we really trusted each other and we knew what the other one was good at and what we were good at. I would say that generally speaking, um, the first page and a half of every chapter and the last page of every chapter, I had a heavier hand in. Again, angles of approach on ramps and off ramps i thought of them as right how do you how do you how do you hold someone's how do you hook someone's attention and then how do you transition to the next thing so structural things like that shaping it so that it's aesthetically enjoyable not just intellectually edifying or even emotionally moving like how do you and and then and then the overall structure of the book from the beginning was a collaboration and occasionally i would have things of my own to observe particularly around the observations on the larger sociological political culture like there was a section in the politics chapter that i wrote at the very end of it where that i wrote about pop culture and that that's the last four pages of that chapter are basically all me and then in the healing section i had a lot more to contribute because i have some personal experience with that I'm not an addiction doctor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm, I write musicals. So earlier in the book, my job was much more about tightening the arguments, tightening the prose, making the science palatable and enjoyable, suggesting what we could keep, what we could cut. And as the book moved along, I had more substantive contributions to the, to the, the substance as well as the style. So what I'm really interested in in what you said there is about that we want that that kind of dichotomy inside us of wanting to hear something and at the same time not wanting to hear it. It's such mm-hmm. an interesting thing that you mentioned there, and I'm really curious to know how you, as someone that maybe is not a doctor or whatever, but how, but as a lyricist, I think this is so important. How did you? come to that understanding and then how did you help us as the readers not recognize that that's was what we were being able to digest from the book if you know what I mean like allowed us to keep going because of the subject matter can be really hard for some people for me it's not because I understand it deeply but for someone coming to it new as you said that aren't Mm -hmm. a follower of this trauma train as you call it how did you do that? That's really interesting because this is the thing that will allow us to change the whole conversation in the world around mental health, really. Well, how I came to that observation was mainly through observing myself and observing others. You know, there was a while when I was doing a series of like personal development courses where the coaching was very direct and rigorous. And um, <clears throat> there was a lot of pointing out of people's blind spots. And one of the core blind spots that we have is we say we want change. We say we want to see the truth, but we insist on a version of things that keeps us stuck and we complain about it. But what we don't see is the 
fringe benefits we derive from keeping our point of view the way it is, even if it's limiting and even if it makes us suffer. There's a part of us that wants to sober up and uh, you know, intellectually and see things clearly. And there's a part of us that's completely comfortable exactly the way it is because we get to blame others. We get to feel helpless and distract ourselves. We get to not feel our how much we care you know we get to we get to sort of um and and i've seen this in myself and in my mental chiropractic work with people it's a fundamental principle of mental chiropractic that when you're stuck and stuck is the starting point of every walk i do with people you got to be stuck somewhere in your life well when we're stuck by definition some part of us is comfortable being stuck it got me this far why change and transformation and a totally radical rehauling or maybe even maybe even letting go of some part of my point of view is scary, even if it holds out the prospect of freedom, maybe because it holds out the prospect of freedom. Because well, with freedom, anything as well. And I imagine that talent has really helped for you um in many ways. And well, lyrics are a very, very uh pithy, condensed art form. You have to choose your words extremely carefully. I mean you know, Shakespeare had to write an iambic pentameter, but he could make the sonnets or the or the or the monologue, the soliloquies as long as he wanted. Songs are, you know, music is the organizer of of song lyrics. So song lyrics, in some ways, have to really every syllable has to be chosen very carefully. Now, in pop music, the stakes are less high. All you have to do is, you know, get some some lyrics that'll pop and be fun to listen to, but there's a lot of leeway in musical theater, which is my home base. You're telling a story, you're creating character, you're, you're expressing the truth of a particular moment and you have to do so in the most elemental, eloquent way. So bringing that skill set to bear on the writing of the book um, was something that was important to me. I wanted every sentence to, to go down smoothly, even if it was containing hard medicine. I, I think it's really interesting that you offer a mental chiropractic service and it's called mm -hmm. uh, Take a Walk with Daniel. Well, I'd love to hear about that um, and how it came about and and what sort of things you do. Do you also, because you mentioned it's about people being stuck and you're, you're helping to walk them through that in a way. Um, be really interested to know is that, how you help people see their blind spots. Cause I think people listening to this podcast, it's called, it's called thriving minds because people are wanting to be walked through that kind of process. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Well, the walking is not metaphorical. I take a walk with the person. They walk physically where they are on the planet. I walk where I am usually here in Brooklyn. If we happen to be in the same city, we'll do it in person, but it's very much, you know, the walking is a key part of it. For some reason, it loosens things up. I mean, any kind of kine uh, was it kinesiologist or anyone, anyone who, you know, it wouldn't be too hard for a specialist to explain why that is. Both hemispheres are working. You're changing your point of view with every step. I that I just did that on a hunch because I think better when I'm walking and I enjoy walking. And I thought if I could get paid to walk with people, that would be amazing. Like, why not? Like I'd much rather that than sitting. I, and I don't want to be a therapist. I'm not a therapist. Some of the ways in which I'm not a therapist are I'm not trying to see the person the following week. It's not like, okay, let's open a long-term process. Nope. You're stuck. What are you stuck on? What's stuck? Okay. 
got it. This relationship is driving you crazy. You have a job interview coming up that's terrifying you. You can't make a certain decision. You're estranged from your something, you know, your child or your parent or whatever. And that's number one. Number two, do you want to get unstuck? Are you willing to get unstuck? Like we said earlier, that's not a slam dunk. You know, you have to answer in the affirmative and really check. And then number three, are you willing to consider the strong, almost certainty that it's your point of view that's keeping you stuck, not the situation itself? If those three boxes are checked, then it's almost a fait accompli. We take a walk, we set an intention. You get clear about what you want positively, not I want to get rid of this thing or I want less fear or whatever. No, I want, you know, my my intention is to like be clearer. My intention is to have peace. My intention is what, you know, whatever it is. And I guide people to set an intention in a particular way. And from there, yeah, I have full license to jostle their blind spot, nudge it out of the way, show it to them. And the minute I do, and the minute they see it, and when that's fueled by a strong intention, like if you really intend freedom, let's say, and I show you unequivocally, kind of undeniably, the point of view that you've been attached to that is anti-freedom, that's keeping you not free, where freedom and that cannot coexist, you can either decide, okay, well, I'm I'm fine the way I am, right? But you can't unsee what I show you. And if your intention is freedom, then you're going to, the, the the old point of view is going to start to look mighty silly. But yet, yet, half an hour ago, it was the only one you would have sworn was possible. And to you, it wasn't even a point of view. It was just the truth. So it is very much about showing people their blind spots, but not me coming in like parachuting in like to, to save the day. They come to me saying, I want to get unstuck. And I say, okay, well, what do you want? in place of the stuckness. Okay, great. Let's go looking for what's in the way. And then we do. And it's either 75 minutes or it's an uh, hour 40. And I have, I'd say, a remarkably strong success rate of people coming out of it, having shifted a paradigm, not in their entire life necessarily, not having healed something in that grand sense, but having brought more wholeness to one area of their life. And that is healing. So I think of it as an outside-in kind of healing rather than going to the depth, the source of the trauma. It's manifesting in one way or another, and we're going to look at what's stuck on the surface. And if we can shift it, I think that sends a wave of relaxation and suppleness and flexibility through the whole system. So as someone that's, I assume you've done quite a lot of walks, do you, do you see a common thread in terms of people's stuckness? There are threads. I'm wanting to write a book about it, so I, I'm, I'm starting to think about what these threads are. Um, I mean, one common thread with everybody is captured in something I call the working theory, that the thing that's keeping the stuckness in place, underneath any stuckness, there is a working theory, a version of things that is internally airtight it's lo it's internally logically consistent and it's opposed it's at odds with reality but that doesn't make a difference it's you know it's welded to the person's face like like a virtual reality helmet 
and it explains and justifies why things are the way they are. It explains why they can't change. It has a, a fantasy usually of what it would take to resolve it, but it's completely unrealistic and unmoored from the reality. And the minute that you can see it, see the working theory as just a working theory, and then do what any good scientist would do and assess it. <laughs> like, does is, is that the most helpful working theory I can come up with? We always find that it's absurd. There's always absurdities hidden right there. You know, in one moment, it really seems like the only way of looking at it. And the next moment, it's kind of laughable. So that's a common thread that that when people see that, there's people lighten up too. And it's not hard for people to see it. Now, there have been a few cases, very few, where someone will fight me all the way to the bitter end. And it turns out that really what they wanted I think covertly was for me to agree with them that actually, no, you are the exception. You really are stuck and it really is that other person's fault. And my goodness, you certainly are justified in holding the grudges you're holding and so on and so forth. Now, I think there's something in them that of course doesn't want that, but that part is not being given the space to speak. What's dominating still is I want to be right. I want to be the victim. I'm, you know, I, my, I want my grievance to be validated and, I don't invalidate people's grievances. I'm just trying to show them the consequences of the way they're looking at it and having trying to get people to a place where they can embrace, not having responsibility imposed on them, but to embrace, oh, I'm the one creating the version of events that makes it so difficult to change the events. Absolutely. That's just a great service. I, I like those solution-oriented, fast ideas of service. Well, it's not, it's not solution oriented. It's dissolution oriented. I don't, I'm not a problem solver. I'm a problem dissolver. I don't give people any advice whatsoever. In fact, once you get a new point of view, once you get unstuck, what there is to do is obvious. And there's, there could be 10 things to do, but just do one thing that's aligned with what you actually want. What you start to see is that what you've been doing has been aligned with something totally else. And that's why you've been, you know, you always win the game you're playing. We're usually not honest about the game we're actually playing. So fascinating. But that's not solving the problem so much as it as it is dissolving it, seeing through it, letting it kind of dissipate and having a newer, better problem, a more actionable problem take its place. Absolutely. So you you're also going to be writing another book called Hello Again. And uh there's so many people on the podcast, including myself, who are parents and have now adult children and then learnt a, I learned a lot about the brain and then realized some of the implications of my own parenting and then from my own parents as well. So this book to me is something that lots of people would be interested to hear about or that I know mm-hmm. you're in draft form or whatever, but I know you've been thinking about it a lot. Definitely. Uh and we, before we got on the podcast, we chatted about it. We, I think this is something lots of people would be interested in hearing about your perspective and an approach here. It'll make people yeah. really good, I think. Well, let me see how good I can do. So I think the key to hello again is uh, in the subtitle. And the subtitle is A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children. Notice that it's not a happy ending for parents and their adult children. It's not total healing and reconciliation um, or a Hollywood, you know, reunion or something. No, it's a fresh start. Well, what does that mean? 
it means updating the relationship to get it into the present. And that's a special challenge with a relationship that is the most past-based relationship imaginable. It's a completely unique relationship. There is no other relationship that started as unequally. And if the idea is try to get to a place of some sort of parity, you know, being on a level playing field, if not total equality, I, I don't know exactly what that would even mean, but you're starting from a, from a place of complete, I mean, inequality is an understatement. You know, one person was a fully grown adult. The other one was a, wasn't even one cell, you know, it was two separate gametes that hadn't even met, you know, you weren't even a twinkle in someone else's eye. You didn't choose to show up. You certainly didn't choose the people to whom you showed up. They didn't really choose who you would be, but they certainly chose to have you on some level, you know. Uh, and then they were completely responsible for you, keeping you alive. Without them, you would have died. But they also had every effect in the world on you. Like th who they were was completely consequential. The things they did, the things they didn't do, the way they sounded, the way they held you, their... Their nervous system conditioned your nervous system. It's inescapable. And along the way, especially in a toxic culture that makes it difficult to give kids what they need, there's going to be damage, either overt damage. Like I think before the show you were talking about, you said like, I did some things to my kid. Well, maybe you did some things to your kids. It's also possible you just did some things and there were consequences for your kids which is, I think, an important distinction because there are parents who need to deal with the fact that they did things to their kids. But even if you didn't do anything to them, you did things and it had an effect and you didn't do things and it had an effect. And blame is beside the point. But those things are in the background of your relationship. They're the part of the formative bricks of the relationship. And now the mission is apparently to try to have an adult relationship between these two people. How in the hell is that supposed to happen? It's the most unlikely thing in the world. And I think that's why no one's ever written a book about it. As far as I know, maybe there's a few out there. Um, but you go into any bookstore, there's infinite books on parenting and lots of books about saying goodbye to your aging or died dying or demented parents but this topic the, the the intervening decades how are we supposed to navigate it and i think for most people it's a can of worms that they think is better left unopened because why bother you don't need each other anymore you can just see each other at holidays it's fine it is what it is we'll survive the relationship what we're proposing is there might be something available if we did more than survive it if we looked at it considered it and it doesn't matter it truly doesn't matter if both people are reading the book or engaging with this material or if it's just one obviously something different is going to be possible in the case of only one person but sometimes there is only one person one of them is dead one of them is hopelessly addicted and way you know not able to be dealing with this one of them is you know got dementia or they're estranged but even then, you have a relationship to the relationship. So we don't have the answer. Anyone who wants to see how unenlightened we are, you go to YouTube and look at our videos of you know us on stage together. You'll see us not being very guru-like in terms of this topic. You'll see us bristling at each other, interrupting each other. You know, my dad sending emails 
with the sound effects on his computer while I'm talking, me making fun of him, uh, him telling me I'm talking too much in front of a room of 400 people. Like all of our ego stuff comes out, you know, what we're doing is we're mapping the territory in real time. Because oh, you know the mate the the mate superpower is letting it all hang out and 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 making everything explicit. That's what we do. <laughs> At least the yeah. two of us we're we're both kind of exhibitionists, and we and we have we both have a desire to use our public facing foibles to help others. We've noticed that people find that to be a breath of fresh air, so we're willing to do that. You know, we're not easily embarrassed. Um. And people react very differently. Some people think when they watch our videos or our workshops, they think he's the villain and I'm the I'm the victim. And some people see it the exact opposite. And some people think we're both wonderful or both horrible. But anyway, that's a workshop we've been collaborating on and co-leading together for six and a half years now. And the book is going to be our kind of crowning statement on that. And it's still a work in progress. We're still figuring out what this thing is. But there are certain observations we have about the dynamics, the ruts, the pitfalls, the kinds of character types that we tend to fall into in this relationship that don't really represent our genuine selves, but rather just ways to cope. The blind spots that parents tend to have, the blind spots that adult children tend to have. Um, the role that childhood trauma plays in the mix of this thing and how to, I think a big part of it is how to look at the past in the most helpful way. Because, you know, as we start to face our childhood traumas, it might be a while before we can be, feel relaxed around our parents again, if, if not, if ever. So, there's nothing, you know, we don't want people to skip through anything or bypass anything. This is about facing the way it is as an access to how it could be. So as a as a like you're on stage with your father, so it's father-son relationships, and they're very, very powerful and important relationships. Actually, fathers have a very big role to play in the family. And a lot has changed in society in different ways where the father's kind of a little bit absent and becoming a little bit more absent as because there's 30% more women at university now and they want to marry more educated men. I don't know. There's a birth gap happening. I don't know if you've heard about this, Stephen Schwartz's, Stephen Shaw's work. He's got a documentary mm. coming out about this. So as someone that's writing in this, in this kind of relationship, what was it like for you as the son with a father out there on the stage talking about all of this, <laughs> what was it like when you kind of came to your own aha moment? Were you very old when you could see that maybe this had, had impacted you? you know, oh, like there was no, back? no, no, there was no aha moment. I always, it's always been right out in the open that my parents, I mean, in fact, my parents were the first ones to tell me that our parenting affected you and they did me no favors by doing so. I was 10 years old or nine years old. But I knew that, but them telling me kind of robbed me of my own incipient awareness of it, you know, because now they're, they've got me on their side. Oh, my parents are so cool and so hip that they tell me that they messed me up. Right. As opposed to just leaving it to me, you know, it created a, a, a sort of, it, 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 it wasn't the antidote to the fusion between us. It was sort of a, it, it, it was like more super glue. 
but no, I've always been, I wrote a, a song when I was 20 or 21 that was just railing at them for having, you know, I said, you were the disease, you were my disease and I can't let you be the cure. You know, the dilemma of having parents who part of how their narcissism, and I don't mean that in the the clinical sense. And I, it's such an no, overused word, I know it is. but their self, their self-absorption, their failure to see that their children for who they are. One of the ways it manifested is in getting into my business about my healing and their guilt taking over that now they need to like fix me, fix the damage they did, but that that's just as damaging. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I think, all you know, parents, so I'll oh, go ahead. Parents, this is a natural tendency in a way. I'm sure it is. I'm sure, I mean, you don't and, like your kids there, suffering. You don't like your kids suffering, but that isn't empathy. That's yeah, you covering it. covering your own ass, at least in terms, or or said more gently, it's you protecting yourself from guilt and shame. But you're not going to get rid of your guilt and shame that way, and you're not going to help your kids that way. So, it's I've always known, and and in terms of what it's like to have my dad out there on stage talking about his parenting, it's annoying, but it's also kind of cool like some people their parents will never acknowledge what happened so there are upsides and there are downsides yeah there's always been a gap between my dad's professional persona and his personal persona and you know who he is in private and i've always been probably the most acutely aware of that person on the planet as his firstborn son Absolutely. i saw it i saw it when i was two or three and i hated him for it yeah and it broke my heart and i you know i'm I had a fantasy of the dad I wanted and it was the 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 person he got to be out in the world was much closer to the dad I imagined he could be but really that was just a that was just a professional guise it's not that it was inauthentic but it was context dependent right yeah i think this So doing this work with him is about not so much about discovering oh wow it affected me but getting but it because it's it gets so muddy it gets so cloudy and nebulous like what happened exactly and how do I feel and what's what's not satisfying now and what can I let go of? And I don't want to blame you, but at the same time, you were there. Your fingerprints are on the wound, like the forensics lead back to you. So damn it, if I just try to bypass this and be like, oh, well, bygones are bygones and you're not responsible for my pain. Well, that's spiritually, that's psychologically and spiritually true, but somehow it's not satisfying because something needs to be acknowledged that but you know what, discovering that I I needed, I have needed to get really clear in my own words what happened to me and get to narrate, be the author, the authority on my own trauma. And one of the things I've kind of laid down for my dad is a new thing is you don't get to talk specifically about these incidents in my childhood anymore on stage or on podcasts. That's my shit. No, I'm glad you talk about your that. parenting, but but I've revoked his license to dine out. On, I think that's great. I, I know, agree with you. And, and, and that, and that came from just finally, after a long time, getting in touch with the gut feeling that had always been there, which is this doesn't feel good. Yeah. And so this is why I'm asking the question, because that's how I felt about it. <laughs> so uh, listening it, cause I'm obviously watching all the, doing the courses of 
compassionate inquiry and all, et cetera. And that's my gut feeling too. So, um, and I think learning to stand up to very powerful people in your life, because, you know, I have parents as well and I was the eldest and a lot of my learnt behaviours come from being a people pleaser and keeping the household quiet. And so being able to speak up and say what I want is been very difficult. Um, but And it's not anyone, as we all talk about, no one's intentionally trying to do this. Um, but then if another way to, I look at it too is the multi-generational nature of all of this and what my parents went through was much harder than what I went through as well. Yeah. And I'm not trying yep. to offer some you know as you said it's not necessarily about healing but i love the fact that you are looking for an opportunity for a fresh start rather than going your whole life and then not at least looking into ways of doing that and i think that's what i love about this title because there's so many people listening here that want the same thing as well and it's working yeah. out the steps towards getting that when it just say you are in a really separate relationship or you don't really see your parents or we have this kind of thing happening, working out some conversational ways or thinking around coming together again is so powerful, isn't it? At least to think about it. Seems to be. I mean, people are really hungry for it for sure. I mean, I look, you talk about my parent, my dad had it harder than I did. My dad was born during the Holocaust. He'll, I'll never win that comparison game, you know, objectively he was born in the midst of a genocide i was born in the middle of a fractious marriage to two parents who enthusiastically wanted me and we were living in relative material comfort in a in western canada in the 1970s that said there is no comparing suffering there's no point we say this in the myth of normal and just because someone's circumstances were more extreme doesn't change anything about the wound that you're carrying. And we each experience our lives subjectively. We don't experience it by comparison. Absolutely. I have no, I, I had no other reference for reference point to compare my experience to. I couldn't, I was going through it full bore and, Absolutely. and with, with the, with the volume turned all the way up. So I would but just say also, it's different. Yeah, but also the what your dad went through, like just looking at just from a science point of view, scientific point of view, that we now know is inherited too in you. Yeah, yeah. Without yeah, you yeah, realizing, yeah, sure. you know, that's part of it too. And and not part of it, yeah. about you personally, but I'm just talking about in general in the world. We know that things from the Holocaust survived two or three generations at least, even if those people didn't go through the Holocaust, for example, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. weren't. But that's what we love about this new, these new platforms, this new way of thinking. This knowledge allows people to see potentially what they may not have seen, as you say, all the time. It's right. putting a, it's pulling back the curtain on the blind spot, so to speak, through this knowledge. So, Daniel, we're so grateful for your time, and you help helping people is so wonderful. Uh, and I know you say you're not a therapist, but I know musical theater for me anyway is like a form of therapy. Um, What's I your favorite it. musical? Uh, Hamilton so far. Okay. Um, I real like I I saw it in San Francisco and I thought it was something extraordinary. It left a big mark in me, um, and I don't know why. It was just the way it was done. I thought it was incredible performance and. 
I know it was just amazing. Uh, also Wicked. I really like Wicked. I also like the Book of Mormon. Um, I could go on and on. Most of them, shall I say. Great. Uh, they're the big ones I know that are on Broadway, etc. But I, I like all sorts of musical theatre that's not on Broadway as well that we mm -hmm. have in my local area mm -hmm. through the yeah. um, art. And so I see people expressing themselves um, and my work and, and what they're doing in that theatre is really overlapping in their ability to try and touch people in a way to see things differently Yeah. as well. So I'm really grateful that you, I, I know that, everything you're doing is going to inform the one that hits Broadway for you too. I really know. I do know that it's coming. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for doing your walk with Daniel. I'd like to take one with you sometime uh, as well. Uh, that's such a great idea. Um, I think, you. and people can find you. You want to tell people where they can find you in case. Yeah. Do you do, do, you do it in Australia? <laughs> I've done walks with people in Australia. Oh, I've done uh, several. Yeah. Okay. We just have to coordinate the timing, you know, but Hey, you I and know. I are, you know, it's Wednesday where you are. It's Tuesday where I am. We're doing this at a comfortable hour for me. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So walk is the mental chiropractic website and you can book a free 15 minute consult with me to discuss what you're stuck with and, and whether it might be a good fit for you. The, the podcast is called let's get lyrical with Carice and Daniel, and it's on all the podcast platforms and on YouTube. Um, DanielMate.com if you want to hear any of my musical theater work. And yeah, The Myth of Normal is in stores now. And I highly recommend people having a look at that. It's uh, really, I'm so glad that you were part of that book because I don't think I could have read it either otherwise. Um, <laughs> well, it wouldn't have happened. The, the, the good news is it just couldn't have happened without me because he was too stuck. Yeah, I could see why. But he actually he actually needed a, a midwife to help him yes. get it out. <laughs> well, it's this kind of subject where, you know, you've, you're approaching really high level societal things. And as a medical doctor where we're real and in science, it's very, he, he calls the word constricted, but it is very constricted about how you have yeah. to view the world mm -hmm. and you're being able to draw the back. The curtain on that is really valuable. So thank you so much for your time today um the audience is really grateful i'm really grateful and i uh, look forward to meeting you again thank you